From New York, this is Democracy Now! Immigrant advocates are rallying in New York State Capitol, calling on the Democratic governor and legislative Democratic supermajorities to expand health care coverage for people regardless of their immigration status after passing a bill to protect New Yorkers with medical debt. We'll speak with New York State Assembly member Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, who says the Assembly can make history by passing health coverage for all. Then to the Minnesota miracle, as the state's Democratic supermajority and governor just enacted sweeping progressive reforms on abortion rights, protections for transgender people, driver's licenses for undocumented residents and gun control, we'll get an update and also look at the Justice Department's new report on how Minneapolis police disproportionately targeted black and Native American people with excessive and unlawful use of force. The patterns and practices we observed made what happened to George Floyd possible. As one city leader told us, quote, these systemic issues didn't just occur on May 25th, 2020. There were instances like that that were being reported by the community long before that. And as the president's son, Hunter Biden, reaches a deal with federal prosecutors, we speak with The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein about his piece, What Does the FBI Have on Hunter and Joe Biden? In a really extraordinary move, Congress has threatened to hold the FBI director in contempt of Congress unless he produces records uh, alleging corruption by Hunter Biden, uh, President Biden's son, and then Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, But... What we know about the documents now shows that uh, they reveal things a bit different than how Congress had sought to portray it. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A federal judge has struck down Arkansas's first-in-the-nation ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth. Judge James Moody, Jr. ruled the ban to be unconstitutional because it discriminates against transgender people and violates the rights of doctors. In his decision, Moody wrote, quote, rather than protecting children or safeguarding medical ethics, the evidence showed the prohibited medical care improves the mental health and well-being of patients, and that by prohibiting it, the state undermined the interests it claims to be advancing, unquote. One of the plaintiffs who sued Arkansas over the ban was a 17-year-old trans student named Dylan Brandt, who responded to the ruling by saying, quote, transgender kids across the country are having their own futures threatened by laws like this one, and it's up to all of us to speak out, fight back, and give them hope, unquote. On Tuesday night, Israeli settlers raided 10 Palestinian villages in the occupied West Bank, setting fire to homes and vehicles. The attacks came hours after two Palestinian gunmen shot dead four Israelis and injured four others near a Jewish settlement. The alleged gunmen were later shot dead. The militant group Hamas said the attack was a response to Israel's massive air and ground raid on the Janine refugee camp on Monday, during which Israel deployed U.S.-made Apache helicopter gunships for the first time in the West Bank in nearly two decades. The death toll from Israel's raid on the refugee camp reached seven today, following the death of a 15-year-old Palestinian girl named Sadil Nagnia, who was shot by Israeli gunfire. 
Palestinians living in Jenin said they're now afraid to let their children go outside. This is Hadil Jass, whose husband was shot dead by Israeli forces Monday. There is no safe place in the camp. At any minute, there could be a raid. We are afraid for our children to go outside. If I want to go to the market, I will be in a hurry to be back home so I can feel safe with my children at home. In Honduras, at least 41 women were killed Tuesday after an attack by gang members inside a women's prison in the town of Tamara. Reports say the women had repeatedly complained about receiving threats from gangs inside the prison but were ignored. Some of the women were burned to death. Others were stabbed and shot. Relatives of the victims are demanding justice. We want to know who are alive because they're human beings. They are our family. We want to see them and know how they are. If all of the authorities are quiet, what are we doing here? Staying silent as well? No, we want answers. Honduran President Shimara Castro, the first female president of Honduras, has fired Honduras' security minister accusing prison authorities of aiding gang members in the massacre. Federal police in Brazil have revealed a top aide to former right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro had gathered documents outlining plans to stage a possible military coup last year after Bolsonaro was defeated by Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. Brazilian police found the planning documents on the phone of Lieutenant Colonel Mauro Cid, who was arrested last month for his role in falsifying Bolsonaro's COVID-19 vaccination records. The Pentagon has announced accounting errors have freed up an additional $6.2 billion to spend on arms for Ukraine. Last month, the Pentagon said it had made a $3 billion accounting error, but officials now say the error is twice as large due to the overestimation of the value of military aid packages. In news from Sudan, heavy fighting has resumed in the capital Khartoum after a 72-hour ceasefire expired. On Tuesday, the Sudanese military accused the rapid support forces of bombing the country's intelligence headquarters. Meanwhile, the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grande, says over 500,000 people have now fled Sudan since fighting began two months ago. Today, right on World Refugee Day, we passed this horrible mark of 500,000 refugees from Sudan. And we know why the fighting is really generating this huge exodus. And if there is not going to be a sustainable ceasefire and then peace, I don't think that we will see an end to it. People will continue to be displaced inside or go outside. In fact, in addition to the 500,000, there are almost 2 million that have moved inside the country because they have nowhere else to go. Amnesty International is urging countries across the Americas to stop their racist treatment of Haitian asylum seekers as thousands continue to flee Haiti due to worsening gang violence, extreme poverty, and a deteriorating political crisis. The group denounced the mass deportations, torture, detention, and violence faced by Haitians in the United States, Mexico, the Dominican Republic, Chile, and other nations where Haitians pass through in their search for protection. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi arrived in New York Tuesday to begin a four-day state visit. On Thursday, President Biden will hold a formal state dinner for Modi hours after he addresses a joint session of Congress. The Biden administration is attempting to strengthen ties to India as part of an effort to counter China's growing power in the Indo-Pacific region. Modi is head of the Hindu nationalist BJP party. He was once banned from the United States on charges he did not intervene in a massacre against Muslims in 2002 in the Indian state. 
state of Gujarat that he headed. At least three Democratic lawmakers plan to boycott Modi's address to Congress, Representatives Jamie Raskin, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib. In a post on social media, Tlaib wrote, quote, it's shameful that Modi has been given a platform at our nation's capital, has long history of human rights abuses, anti-democratic actions, targeting Muslims and religious minorities, and censoring journalists is unacceptable, she said. Hunter Biden, the son of the president, has reached a deal with federal prosecutors to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges as part of a deal that allow him to avoid facing prosecution on a separate gun charge. The deal caps a multi-year investigation by the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who is appointed by Donald Trump, but allowed to stay in his role by President Biden. House Republicans have described the deal as a slap on the wrist and a vow to continue to investigate Hunter Biden and his overseas business ventures. A disciplinary hearing has begun in California for attorney John Eastman, who advised Donald Trump on ways to overturn the 2020 election. At the time, Eastman was the dean of the Chapman University Law School in Southern California. Eastman faces 11 disciplinary charges in the state bar court of California. The process could lead to his disbarment. The federal judge overseeing Donald Trump's trial for mishandling classified documents has set an initial trial date of August 14th, one week before the first Republican presidential debate. U.S. District Court Judge Aileen Cannon set the date on Tuesday, but many legal experts expect the trial will be delayed. Cannon's a Trump-appointed judge who served on the federal bench for less than three years. According to The New York Times, she's only overseen four short criminal trials in her time on the bench. In labor news, Senator Bernie Sanders has launched a Senate investigation into the dangerous working conditions at Amazon warehouses. In a letter to Amazon Chief Executive Officer Andy Jassy, Sanders wrote, quote, Amazon is one of the most valuable companies in the world worth $1.3 trillion, and its founder, Jeff Bezos, is one of the richest men in the world worth nearly $150 billion. Amazon should be one of the safest places in America to work, not one of the most dangerous, Sanders said. ProPublica has revealed Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito took an undisclosed luxury fishing vacation with Republican megadonor Paul Singer in 2008 and then later ruled in Singer's favor in several cases. According to ProPublica, the billionaire hedge fund manager gave Alito a free ride on his luxury jet to Alaska for a trip where one participant bragged about drinking $1,000 bottles of wine. Alito never reported the all-expenses-paid trip on disclosure forms since the trip. Paul Singer's hedge fund came before the Supreme Court at least 10 times, and Alito never recused himself. ProPublica reports Alito's trip was organized by Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, who's played a key role in pushing the court to the right. Hours prior to the publication of ProPublica's report, Alito published a column in the Wall Street Journal headline, ProPublica Misleads Its Readers. In the piece, Justice Alito acknowledged taking the trip but denied violating any ethics rules. Heat records continue to be shattered in Texas and Mexico as a massive heat dome remains over the region. In San Angelo, Texas, temperatures reached 114 degrees Fahrenheit Tuesday, breaking the old record by three degrees. In Laredo, temperatures hit 115 degrees Monday, according to the organization Climate Central. Climate change is making the extreme heat five times as likely to occur in parts of Texas. On this first day of summer, meteorologists are taking part in the sixth annual Show Your Stripes Day to raise awareness about the link between weather and the climate crisis. 
A massive search effort continues in the Atlantic Ocean after a tourist submersible went missing during a trip to explore the wreck of the Titanic, which sits over 12,000 feet below sea level. Five passengers are on board, including the founder of Ocean Gate Expeditions, which organized the trip. For years, the company ignored warnings by its own staff and experts that the company's deepwater missions could lead to a catastrophe because the submarine did not meet industry standards. Tickets for the mission reported cost $250,000 each. Passengers aboard the ship include two billionaires, Hamish Harding from Britain and Shazada Dawood from Pakistan, who is on board with his son. And many are questioning the massive media coverage of the Titanic adventurers in light of the lack of attention paid to the thousands of migrants lost at sea as they attempt to reach Europe, fleeing persecution, poverty and the impacts of the climate crisis in their home countries. This comes as authorities in Greece have recovered three more bodies of men who drowned last week in one of the deadliest migrant shipwrecks in years. The official death toll is 81, but The New York Times reports as many as 700 migrants may have died when their overcrowded ships sang off the co- sank off the coast of Greece. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show here in New York, where the Democratic governor, Kathy Hochul, faces pressure to expand health care coverage for people regardless of their immigration status. Democrats hold supermajorities in both chambers of the New York state legislature. And today is the second of a two day special session where state assembly members could vote to expand health coverage for thousands of people in a bill called Coverage for All, which would use a surplus of federal funds, allowing people who are undocumented to enroll in New York's essential plan under the Federal Affordable Care Act. Currently, over a quarter million New Yorkers are excluded from Medicaid and the essential plan health care coverage due to their immigration status. The measure is sponsored by New York Assembly member Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, who negotiated with the governor to address cost concerns. But this week, it was not included in a list of legislation to be considered in this final special session by Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, prompting immigrant advocates to rally outside the assembly as lawmakers returned for their session Tuesday. This comes as Governor Hochul is set to sign a measure that did pass in the assembly Tuesday and is celebrated by healthcare advocates because it would bar credit reporting agencies from collecting medical debt or including medical debt in a consumer's credit report. A survey by the Community Service Society of New York found more than 40 percent of New Yorkers have paid a medical bill that may not have owed out of fear of it being sent to collections. Meanwhile, about the same percentage said they'd avoided getting health care they needed because of the cost. For more, we're joined by two guests. In a minute, we'll speak with New York State Assembly member Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas. But first, to Elizabeth Benjamin, vice president of health initiatives at the Community Service Society of New York and co-founder of Healthcare for All New York campaign. Elizabeth, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't we start off with this medical debt victory that you've had in both houses of the New York legislature before we move on to the issue of immigrant health care? Um, talk about the medical debt bill that just passed by the assembly was already passed by the uh, Democratic supermajority in the Senate. 
Sure. Um, thank you for having me back on Democracy Now. It's really exciting to be here again. Um, well, 80, American, uh, 80 million Americans have medical debt. Uh, medical debt is a severe problem for folks. Um, you already outlined some of the issues, but I just want to point out that there are also profound racial disparities in medical debt. 28% of African-American folks have medical debt versus 22% of white folks. And, um, pardon me, 22% uh, of Latinx folks. And then 17% of white people have medical debt. So that is a profound problem for people. One of the ways that medical debt is experienced is once you run into medical debt, fairly quickly, um, healthcare providers and their collection agents uh, report you to the big three credit reporting bureaus. And you might think, well, at least they're not suing or what's the big deal? But it is a big deal. Credit reports are used for people to apply for jobs, for applying for apartments, for applying for a loan, uh, for applying for a school loan. Um, and so it really has profound ramifications. Um, we were working with a guy that runs a tow truck business in Oneida, um, Oneonta County. And he basically, having had to go to a SUNY Upstate Hospital, he ended up having a big $10,000 bill. It ruined his life. He lost his towing business. He could not get more loans to buy more tow trucks or at least more tow trucks. And his business went under. This is what happens every single day to people by having medical debt reported on your credit report. So we're really excited. Colorado at first. I want to just give a big shout out to the advocates um, in Colorado. But there's been this movement around the country saying, well, wait a second. Why are we reporting medical debt in the first place? It's not like people are buying a lot, you know, a new leather couch and racking up bills beyond their means. People go to get health care mostly out of emergencies or medical necessity. So why are we reporting this in the first place? But not only that, when they started analyzing, when the experts analyzed what's on credit reports, they found that they were rife with errors in the area of medical debt. So, and we all know why, right? The insurance company doesn't bill properly. I mean, the, the healthcare provider doesn't bill the insurance properly. The code is wrong. The insurance company accidentally rejects it or intentionally rejects it. Who knows? There's this whole back and forth, this dance between, you know, in our, in our really weird patchwork healthcare system. It's not that insurance company's responsibility. It's a different insurance company's responsibility. Who knows? But anyways, the medical debt that is on people's credit reports is more often than not shouldn't be there in the first place. Then on top of it all, study after study has shown that when lenders look at credit reports and they analyze medical debt, that is not predictive of whether someone is a good lend lending risk or not. So what's the point of having incorrect and not, and non-utility, there's no utility medical debt on a credit report in the first place, which is why, thanks to uh, the Assembly and the, the Senate, you know, so 740,000 New Yorkers moving forward will no longer have medical debt on their credit reports. And we couldn't be more delighted here in New York. And a big shout out again to our friends in Colorado who did it first. We're second. But we know many other states are considering this same piece of legislation now that the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said it was OK to pass this on the state level. Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you about another health-related issue, the issue of uh, Medicaid eligibility. Uh, there was a huge increase during the pandemic in the number of people who were able to use Medicaid who had lost their jobs. Uh, but now, starting in April, this past April, there's now a uh, question, uh, a mandate to reevaluate eligibility. What's going to be the impact uh, on the uh, Medicaid enrollment as a result of this? 
Yeah. Um, so what happened is during the pandemic, the federal government, um, I believe, first under the Trump administration and then in the Biden administration said, OK, we're not going to force people to prove their life every year in order to maintain Medicaid coverage and also in New York State essential plan coverage. We're going to just say, you know, people's incomes rarely change, fluctuate during the year anyway. We're just going to roll them over. And so that rolling over of everybody's um, Medicaid eligibility and um, public coverage eligibility happened for um, about three years. Uh, that, you know, the, as we all know, COVID is, uh, has been declared eliminated or at least over. And so on May 11th, um, the administration said, okay, we're going to stop requiring states to continue that, um, that coverage, uh, you know, uh, renewal, automatic renewal. And we're going to require the states over the next 14 months to take a look at their public insurance roles and sort of slow. And in New York state, for example, we're doing it batch by batch, month by month. We're having everybody come in and renew their coverage. The very sad thing is that some states are not like New York and they just kind of are just bombing through these renewals and just kind of kind of it seems it would appear that there is, you know, huge volume in disenrollments. Um, we're lucky again in New York. We have a, a, a really different approach. It's an all hands on deck approach. We are um, we were very lucky that we went to eight funders. My own organization went to eight funders and we have this great consortium of New York based funders who are giving micro grants through the Community Service Society of New York to um, over 36 local community based organizations covering nearly every single county of New York um, to kind of do boots on the ground, outreach, local media buys, um, to kind of tell people, hey, come in, renew your coverage. Let's try to keep every single person who's eligible on coverage over the next um, 14 months. Um, And so far, it seems to be going pretty well in New York, but not so well in other states. Um, And I think it just shows the different approach to whether, you know, people really, uh, state officials really value Um, the importance of people having coverage, which we think is so fundamental to people being able to have effective and productive and healthy lives. Elizabeth, I wanted to play a clip from We the Patients New York, which has spoken to many people struggling with medical debt. This is Anthony Calafura's story. So slightly over a year ago from now, I was committed to the psych ward after a failed suicide attempt. I was there for 14 days. It genuinely helped me until I received my bill afterwards. But thankfully, I was under my estranged father's insurance. But even then, and currently today, I am over $2,000 in debt. And my mother has refused to help me pay. So I've essentially been forced to kind of figure out this whole situation by myself. When I was committed, I was 17. So after I got released, when I tried calling like the hospitals, there wasn't much I could do because I was still a minor. And it just felt like a circle and I never really got like actual advice on what to do. Now that I'm 18, it's been like six months since I've been released. So all my debt has been transferred to the debt collection agency. Nobody around me really knows what to do. And this whole situation has just been causing me so much stress. It's like every time I check my mail, Every time I receive an 866 call, which now I know is the debt collection agency's number, every time I see a reminded text, I'm just reminded of how much debt I'm in. And it just makes me really anxious. And it's been really not good for my mental health, which is why I'm even in debt in the first place, was to get better. I think there should be a lot of change within the medical system. I think in schools, they should teach you about how insurance works, even how to manage debt. For the most part, I've just felt really alone even when there are 23 million Americans in debt, which is essentially one in 10 Americans. 
in general, the U.S. healthcare system, people shouldn't have to go into debt with like little knowledge on what to do after just to get the medical care that they need. People also just shouldn't be afraid and resistant to going to the doctors in fear of the bill that they're going to receive after. Just before we go to the state assembly member, Elizabeth, the significance of his age on the issue of medical debt. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, if if his mother had, you know, disavowed him, he would have been considered an emancipated minor. He would have been eligible for Medicaid or Child Health Plus. That hospital or mental health facility never should have put him into collections. It's, you know, there's all these facilities in New York collect millions of dollars in indigent care pool funds that could have been um, applied to his case. There's just no good reason for, for him to have been put into collections. And it, it's, it's actually heartbreaking. And it's why we have these things like my agency runs called the Consumer Assistance Program that was funded under the Affordable Care Act for the first year and then never funded again, um, based, basically over Republican opposition, not to fund these consumer assistance programs that could help people like like who was compl- you know him who was completely eligible for coverage at the time. Uh, it's just heartbreaking. Uh, I want to bring in addition to Elizabeth Benjamin, Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, New York State Assembly member uh, representing the 34th District in Queens. Her op-ed in El Diario Tuesday was headlined, The Assembly Can Make History by Passing Health Coverage for All. Um, Assembly member, can you start off by talking about the significance of what it would mean? I mean, we're talking about a Democratic supermajority in the Assembly. Already, the Democratic supermajority in the New York State Senate passed this. Why hasn't this bill been brought to the House floor? And talk about exactly what it is. So, first off, thanks for having me, and thanks for talking about this important topic. As I mentioned in my op-ed, this is an opportunity for us to make history. This is a moment where we have a bill that will direct the Commissioner of Health to submit a federal waiver, the 1332 waiver, that would allow for us to use federal surplus dollars in order to cover a population in our state, our New York State undocumented residents who utilize health care um, and uh, currently we're spending our emergency Medicaid dollars to get their health care. But what this bill would do is allow us to use federal surplus money to allow them to enroll in our New York State uh, health insurance plan called the Essential Plan. Um, this is groundbreaking because we have an opportunity to utilize surplus federal dollars. Washington State got this waiver approved. Colorado got this waiver approved. There is, as you mentioned, no reason why we shouldn't be able to move forward. It passed in the Senate. Um, We are in active conversations with our colleagues in the Assembly. We are in a special session right now. (laughs) And um, I'm I'm still optimistic that we can push this through, but we really just have today. And and Assemblywoman, what what does Governor Hochul say about this? Why is she opposing it? I I understand she claims it's going to cost two to three billion dollars annually. And uh, but uh, your perspective is that it will actually in the long term save money to the state. Could you talk about the differences there? Absolutely. This will not cost the state any money and in fact will save the state uh, about half a billion dollars in emergency Medicaid uh, costs that we bear as a state each year for the cost of care for our undocumented people. And again, these are folks that are in 
uh, are in dire emergency and are ending up in the emergency room, that is not quality health care. We can instead submit this federal waiver to use federal dollars at no cost to the state, and I want to be incredibly clear, no cost to the state um, to allow folks to enroll in our New York State Essential Plan. Uh, again, these two states have done it. What we've added to the bill to make sure to guard against any concerns around uh, costs is allow the commissioner to create guardrails. They can cap the program. They could limit it to a certain federal poverty level. They could put a dollar amount. Um, but again, this, these are the, the use of federal dollars. We garner a surplus every year through a statute in the Affordable Care Act, and we can we are pretty much guaranteed about $2 billion of surplus funds every single year. And we've seen that since our program started in 2015. And this would just expand eligibility for those people uh, who are New Yorkers, who are residents of New York, and would otherwise qualify except for the immigration status. So this would allow those folks to enroll in health insurance, be much healthier. They're a low-cost community. Our, our immigrants are actually a very healthy community. So it would actually bring down the cost for everyone to administer the program and perhaps can even garner additional surplus funds. And you've mentioned these federal surplus funds. What are they exactly? And, and, and where, where are they hiding in the budget? <laughs> so they are money that when we created our New York State Essential Plan back in 2015, uh, we had to submit a waiver that said that we would create our own state plan and the federal government will reimburse the state uh, 95% of what they would spend because right now the, the ACA requires a federal marketplace. So they, because we created our own state plan, uh, we have this agreement to get reimbursed like credits up to 95% of what the federal government would have spent. Well, we're uh, way under the cost of what the federal government would spend. So we get reimbursed, but we have actually accumulated about $2 billion per year since the program started in 2015. And um, right now we're sitting on about, you know, $11 billion trust fund. We cannot use that trust fund to cover the undocumented communities. We have to submit the waiver that's directed in my bill called Coverage for All um, in order to be able to use future surplus funds. But again, we've garnered these funds since our program started, our essential plan program in the state. And um, we anticipate that we'll continue to um, bring in those surplus funds. And that pot of money can be used. And we got a letter from the, uh, the Federal Centers for Medicaid and, and Medicare Services that said, yes, you can use the surplus funds to cover undocumented communities. Um, again, two other states have gotten this approval. We should be next. Uh, Assemblymember Gonzalez Rojas, not that I comment on women's clothes who are our guests, but I can't help but notice that you're wearing a necklace that says daughter of an immigrant. Um, if you yes. can talk about the significance of what this means and also the support that your bill has gotten from a 100 unions, health plan providers, community organizations that have signed a letter to the Assembly Speaker Hasty urging the passage of this bill. Yeah, this, I mean, personally, as a daughter of an immigrant, my father's from this teeny tiny country in South America called Paraguay. Um, he came in the 60s and, you know, he came in with legal, as a legal permanent resident. But I represent a district in Western Queens, Jackson Heights, East Elmhurst, Corona, Woodside, Astoria, 
that has such a large immigrant community and many, many who are undocumented. So as personally as a daughter of an immigrant and someone who represents a district that has a vibrant, uh, a vibrant uh, immigrant population, many who are undocumented, many who were those essential workers who ensure that we survive during this pandemic. They were out there, you know, providing those essential services, deliveries. They were street vendors. They were people at the front lines. They deserve health care. And as was mentioned, we had tremendous support. I mean, we have everyone from the Business Council to the Greater New York Hospital Association to countless unions, the healthcare union, DC 37, uh, RWDSU. We have advocacy organizations. We have tremendous support. The previous health commissioner of New York State, Mary Bassett, submitted comments in support of expanding uh, coverage for our undocumented community under this federal waiver. So we don't understand why the governor's uh, resistance. Um, she said that she would work with the federal government last year because we were very close to getting this done last year. She said she'd work with the federal government. We've been working with the federal government. Then she said she wanted a letter of guidance from the federal government. We got that letter of guidance on June 6. Um, so that sort of uh, fast-tracked the bill. We were very fortunate to get our Senate sponsor, Senator Gustavo Rivera, who is a big fan of this show. <laughs> um, he was able to move the bill in the Senate. Um, so again, there's no reason why we shouldn't get this done in the Assembly. It's, it's really a win-win-win for the state, for our communities, with the tremendous amount of diverse support that's behind this. Yeah, I wanted to bring in Elizabeth Benjamin again, just a quick thing, because we don't have a, a much time. But Elizabeth, could you give us a quick sense of what has been happening with the thousands of asylum seekers that have been sent here by Republicans sure. in, in uh, governors in Texas and Florida? What's their situation in terms of health care access? Well, they're actually already eligible. Um, they're lawfully present because they've, you know, registered themselves at the border. They've applied for asylum. So this this surplus is really for our longtime essential workers who worked their, you know, worked their their bone, their fingers to the bones throughout the pandemic, and really for the longtime immigrant population who's already here. Many of them, as um, Assemblywoman Gonzalez Rojas said, are already availing themselves of the emergency. Medicaid program at great cost to the state of New York and the federal government. We would be saving combined a billion dollars a year if we just went for the, this coverage for all bill and had the federal surplus funds be used instead so people could have comprehensive coverage for all of their, you know, their regular preventive health, vaccinations, everything they could then get as opposed to this episodic, willy-nilly, high-cost emergency room care. So I, I think Assemblywoman Gonzalez- Rojas just nailed it. The time is now. We must do this. Um, the, the, our waiver is already pending before the federal government. All we need to do is amend it to include immigrants. The math is done. We're ready, Freddie. Let's get this done. Elizabeth Benjamin, Vice President of Health Initiatives at the Community Service Society of New York, and Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, New York State Assembly member. Thanks so much for joining us. Next up, we look at the Minnesota miracle at Minnesota's Democratic supermajority and governor who've just enacted sweeping progressive reforms. And we'll go to Minneapolis as the Justice Department concludes police disproportionately targeted Black and Native American people. Stay with us.
Lord, I am running. 99 and a half won't do by Reverend Seku. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to Minnesota, where the state legislature's Democratic supermajority and Democratic Governor Tim Walz just enacted sweeping progressive reforms during its legislative session, which lasted only four months. The series of bills is being praised as the Minnesota Miracle 2.0, as Democrats successfully codified abortion rights, protections for transgender people, driver's licenses for undocumented residents, new gun control rules, paid family, medical and sick leave, the restoration of voting rights for previously incarcerated people. A $1 billion investment in affordable housing that includes rent assistance and stronger protections for workers seeking to unionize, among other reforms. The original Minnesota miracle was a nickname given to reforms enacted in the early 70s by a less conservative Republican legislature and then Democratic Governor Wendell Anderson. For more, we go to St. Paul, Minnesota, where we're joined by Peter Callahan, staff writer at the Men Post, who's covered all of this closely. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Why don't you lay out what happened? How much time do you have? <laughs> you know, a, a lot happened. I mean, to us, and looking at this, uh, it's less of a surprise than it is for for you folks nationally, because the Democratic majorities were pretty clear early on uh, that they were going to uh, run most of these bills. There was some pent-up demand, actually a lot of pent-up demand. It's been 10 years of divided government in Minnesota, so neither party really got all that they wanted or even much that they wanted. So a, a somewhat surprising election uh, last November delivered narrow majorities for Democrats, but it was uh, a different kind of majority than they'd had 10 years ago in that it was also an ideological majority, not just a partisan majority. So it was one of the really few uh, pro-choice majorities that there had been in Minnesota. Um, even when Democrats had control in past sessions, they weren't uh, ab- abortion rights majorities. So they they pretty much decided a couple of things. One, they had four years, meaning they could lose the House in two years, but they couldn't lose the governor's office or the state Senate until 26. So whatever they passed could stay in place for these four years. Uh, it's harder to uh, harder to rescind things than it is to pass things and that they were going to make a list and check it off as they went. And so it was kind of less of a surprise to us here that all these things passed, and I think it was nationally. And could you talk specifically about the housing legislation, the nonprofit organization Home Line has described the tenant landlord law as the, the most substantial change in the state's history? Yeah, I, I'll give them a pass on how they know uh, what the landlord-tenant laws were like uh, at statehood. Um, but that sort of uh, hyperbole is pretty common now uh, as you go through. The the landlord-tenant uh, changes are, again, a, a result of pent-up demand. Uh, for all these years, anything that passed in that realm had to be a compromise between landlords and tenant organizations. And with the trifecta, uh, democratic trifecta, they no longer really needed to bring in the landlord groups. And a lot of these issues were things that had passed in other states and had been proposed by Democrats in Minnesota in the last uh, decade, but just didn't have the votes to pass. So that uh, landlord-tenant changes were significant, but you you really can't look at those without looking at the billion-dollar investment in affordable housing. 
uh, a typical uh, budget for housing in Minnesota is 150 million to 200 million in a biennium. Uh, so that gives you some sense of what a billion dollars is. And that money isn't just going to build housing uh, with both public housing and with nonprofits. It's the first ever state vouchers, rental voucher system similar to the Section 8 program on the federal level. Uh, it's uh, uh, first-time homebuyers down payment assistance. Uh, it is uh, uh, a renewal of rental assistance similar to what went on during the pandemic across the country. Uh, that that money is also significant and coupled with the tenant uh, rights uh, uh, bill is interesting because the landlord groups after the session were not happy with the uh, changes to landlord tenant law, but they're pretty happy about the billion dollar investment because their their members will see that uh, through rent payments and other things. And uh, what are the potential for legal challenges to some of the uh, this legislation? Uh, I don't know that there's really anything that was thought to be outside the realm of the authority of the legislature. Um, the the uh, bills sort of have all all been all been vetted over the last several years. I'm not aware of anything significant challenging, uh, similar to several years ago when they passed the opioids uh, protections. Uh, the uh, pharma definitely was going to sue and did sue, and that case is still pending. But I don't know of any litigation right now. Mm. Uh, Peter Callahan, we were just talking to New York folks about their fight right now to get health care for uh, all New Yorkers, uh, including undocumented New Yorkers. In fact, Min- Minnesota did just that. Is that right? Can you talk about health care for all there and also the issue of abortion, what was passed? Yeah, it's that that in fact, I was listening to that segment and thinking that passed here uh, really with not a lot of attention on it. Um, Minnesota does uh, a system. I work the Washington legislature, so I know some contrast. Um, A lot of things show up in omnibus bills at the end of session. So 10 big, fat, hundreds and hundreds of page bills and things can get put into that. Those bills that maybe were heard, maybe were talked about, but but there, there was no. Uh, obvious sense that they were passing and things like uh, health care under the Minnesota care program uh, for people who do not have documentation was put into one of those bills. So really didn't get a lot of attention. What we do after session is we start going through all of these bills to find all the things that were put into those bills. They don't make the list that we wrote about uh, on adjournment, but there's some there's significant things. And that was one of them. And the abortion rights issue, that was really I I think it's I'm comfortable in saying that these were abortion rights majorities. Uh, The the Democrats didn't think they were going to win the majorities in either the House or the Senate. Uh, they thought the Senate Republicans would retain control, and the, the House DFL, I think, thought they were going to lose control of the legislature in November. I want to bring into the conversation Robin Wansley, uh, Minneapolis's first black Democratic Socialist City Council member, longtime Minneapolis organizer and activist. Uh, the Minnesota governor, Tim Walls, faced backlash from labor organizers after, in May, he issued the first veto in his entire tenure, blocking a bill that would have granted minimum wage and better working protections for Uber and Lyft drivers. The veto came just hours after Uber threatened to pull out of Minnesota. Minnesota. Your response, Robin. 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, as Peter highlighted, what we saw at the state level um, and what was very crucial in delivering this Minnesota Miracle 2.0 is we saw finally the uh, coalition, a strong coalition be built between um, progressive and democratic socialist uh, elected officials, along with, uh, you know, key grassroots groups who have been organizing for decades around some of the key demands that you mentioned, um, as well as labor. Labor was part of that coalition, too. Um, and and as part of that coalition, you know, we saw some amazing, you know, pieces of legislation be delivered. Um, but we also should, you know, see this veto as um, a clear indicator that corporate interests still hold significant sway and influence over um, our, our state government and over a contingency of the Democratic Party, specifically the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and that was manifested, yes, in the veto uh, against the uh, ride share protection um, legislation that would uplift uh, workers who are doing, you know, necessary uh, work with Uber and Lyft. Um, but we also saw it with the nurses staffing legislation too, where Mayo Clinic threatened to pull out billions of dollars of investment because nurses dare to say that we actually need to center the needs of our healthcare workers and our patients as opposed to the profits of corporate healthcare executives. Um, so those were the two instances where in light of this entire session, um, we saw still uh, the, the, uh, the establishment wing of the Democratic Party uh, be pool to fulfill the interests of uh, the corporate establishment in the state. Um, and, you know, in light of that, I'm very excited, though, that my office is working with those drivers who pushed for such an unprecedented part of, you know, of legislation that will uplift this segment of workers. We're on the work right now or on the ground right now in Minneapolis to get that done here um, and to, you know, support our colleagues as they bring that fight forward once again um, at the state coming um, into the 2024 legislative session. I also want to comment that uh, to, um, that uh, Peter kept referring to DFL, which for a global audience is the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party, the Minnesota affiliate of the U.S. Democratic Party. But, uh, Robin, I also want to ask you about the latest news coming as the Justice Department has accused the Minneapolis Police Department of disproportionately um, uh, targeting black and Native American people and frequently using excessive and unlawful use of force. The findings come in investigation launched after the police killing of George Floyd in May of 2020. Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke Friday. The patterns and practices we observed made what happened to George Floyd possible. As one city leader told us, quote, these systemic issues didn't just occur on May 25th, 2020. There were instances like that that were being reported by the community long before that. Robin Wansley, your response as a longtime Minneapolis organizer and activist as a Minneapolis now city council member. Yeah, um, it's very interesting to hear, you know, Mayor Garland again share those findings. Um, 
and hearing that in contrast with talking about the Minnesota Miracle 2.0, because since George Floyd's murder, um, what we've experienced here in Minneapolis has been nothing close to a miracle, but it has felt like a Minneapolis nightmare under the Fry administration specifically. Um, Under Mayor Fry's administration, uh, which I will note, you know, the DOJ findings um, or investigation period took place from 2016 to 2022, the entire tenure of the Mayor Fry's administration. Um, We also, a year ago, had um, the investigation be led by the Minnesota uh, Department of Human Rights that also found that MPD, Minneapolis Police Department, had engaged in a violent, racist, and misogynistic uh, series of patterns and practices against residents. Um, And that investigation failed within 2010 to 2020, so about three years of Mayor Fry's tenure as mayor. And over the course of his entire tenure, Mayor Fry has remained the sole executive authority over MPD. And the findings have made it clear that he turned a blind eye to a rogue, violent and racist police department, um, as well as I want to say council. Um, that is noted in the Minnesota Department of the Human uh, Human Rights findings as well, that council members, um, some of those that are still there today, turned a blind eye to the police department that led to not only the events of George Floyd, uh, but acknowledging that there is dozens of victims uh, prior to George Floyd and even afterwards. So I want to name, you know, and Mayor Garland said this himself, for residents here in Minneapolis, the findings that were, um, you know, released from the DOJ as well as the Minnesota Department of Human Rights have have they're not new. They're not surprising. This has been the reality of working class people, especially black and brown and indigenous uh, working class folks in our city uh, for decades. And our elected officials have ignored the pleas um, and the cries and the testimonies of those communities when they talked repeatedly about the violence they experienced at the hands of the police. Um, And instead, what we're seeing is a Fry administration that is still ramming through um, a status quo model of policing. Most recently, he's he's trying to push through the rebuilding of the third precinct, despite opposition from the the public around that. Um, We've had taxpayers have to fork over, you know, more than $50 million in uh, misconduct settlement cases that police have caused. Um, Taxpayers have also had to pay over $60 million in workers' uh, compensation claims that MPD officers have used um, as a way to flee the police department as it undergoes or are being mandated to undergo these robust reforms by now the Minnesota Department of Human Rights and the Department of Justice. Um, So in light of that, again, none of this is new, but what I think is most, um, most important in these conversations is, again, this has had this has happened under Mayor Fry's tenure. Mayor Fry has repeatedly shown, as indicated in these findings, that he is not competent in exercising his authority to hold our racist and misogynistic police department accountable. And as a result of that, and as and <clears throat> actually as a result of community members persistently organizing for a new model of comprehensive public safety that do things like what's highlighted in the DOJ report, as well as the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, like creating mental health responders. The community should be at the table for this consent decree around the DOJ. And Robin Wansley, we're going to continue this conversation, but we have to end right now. Minneapolis City Council member, thanks so much for joining us. Also, Peter Callahan, staff writer at the Min Post.
Next up, as the president's son, Hunter Biden, reaches a deal with federal prosecutors, we'll speak with The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein. His piece, What Does the FBI Have on Hunter and Joe Biden? Back in 30 seconds. by Wunderbar. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Hunter Biden, the son of the president, has reached a deal with federal prosecutors to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges as part of a deal that allow him to avoid facing prosecution on a separate gun charge. The deal caps a multi-year investigation by the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who was appointed by Donald Trump, but allowed to stay in his role by President Biden. House Republicans have described the deal as a slap on the wrist and vowed to continue to investigate Hunter Biden. For more, we're joined by Ken Klippenstein, investigative reporter with The Intercept, who co-wrote the piece with Ryan Grimm, headlined, What Does the FBI Have on Hunter and Joe Biden? Ken, thanks so much for being with us. Why don't you lay out um, the results of this case? And again, it's not the Democrats who are uh, criticizing here. It's the Republicans who have been going after um, Hunter Biden for so many years. Thanks for having me, Amy. Um, to speak to the case, uh, in May, a whistleblower, an FBI whistleblower, came forward to Senator Chuck Grassley, who is the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, which oversees the FBI. And um, in this whistleblower's report, alleged that the FBI had something called an FD-1023. That's a type of document that memorializes uh, tips that they get from what's called confidential human sources. That's FBI speak for informants. And um, according to, and you know, I should remind listeners that uh, the information we're getting from this is from both Grassley and um, uh, Representative Comer, who sits on, uh, who chairs the Oversight Committee. So uh, what this FD-1023 claims, um, according to them, uh, is that uh, President, uh, then Vice President Joe Biden received $5 million um, in exchange uh, for policy decisions specifically uh, to fire, to get, to, to get fired the top prosecutor um, of Ukraine uh, who had been investigating what's called Burisma Holdings. This is one of the biggest natural gas companies in Ukraine. And the allegation is that uh, the reason for that um, uh, payment is uh, uh, President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, sat on the board of directors of Burisma. Um, but what's left out in a lot of the, you know, frankly, partisan discussion about this, and that's really the reason that we did the story, was just to look at what the basic facts were, um, is that this FD-1023, that's just an allegation. They have not been verified, and that's something that if you look closely at the what the Republicans are saying, the more cautious ones uh, have conceded that. And, and Ken, uh, much has been made about the Hunter Biden laptop and the, the attempt to suppress it. And uh, so the investigation uh, apparently found nothing uh, uh, illegal uh, in that laptop. Well, it's complicated. And there are a number of investigations. And when the FBI talks about these things, they're always uh, very vague about it. Um, you know, they don't want to interfere with an ongoing investigation. Uh, but what was interesting about um, the laptop case is that, yes, um, you know, former mayor 
Rudy Giuliani played a role in having it uh, delivered to the FBI. They ended up investigating it. Uh, it appears uh, from these charges, at least, that that, that was not something that um, uh, resulted in, in, you know, prosecutorial charges. Um, but that's something that the um, Republicans have been <laughs> pushing very ardently to, to, to um, try to investigate. But there's, no, there's been no I- information from that laptop uh, uh, verifying any of the allegations I described before. And in terms of the plea agreement reached, uh, there are some that say that that even prosecution for these uh, uh, misdemeanors was a stretch. And of course, the Republicans are arguing that this was extreme leniency and a double standard by the Justice Department when it came to Hunter Biden. Your sense of the facts of what uh, you've uncovered. Yeah, there have been a number of, uh, I, I saw recently quoted a public defender describing how, how unusual uh, the sentence w- was in terms of how um, aggressively it was prosecuted. Um, but we're in territory that's, you know, extremely <laughs> politically uh, sensitive and, and, you know, very, very partisan in nature. I mean, these top Republicans that I mentioned before, uh, Representative Comer, uh, again, chairs the Oversight Committee, and then uh, Senator Grassley, have all but admitted um, that, uh, you know, President Trump is being, former President Trump is being uh, prosecuted in the um, classified documents case and in New York. And they've all but come out and said, you know, why, why don't they prosecute uh, Biden? <laughs> and so they're very explicitly connecting the two cases and not being particularly subtle about the um, uh, partisan and uh, political nature of, of, of their, their call for, for these investigations and prosecutions. And Ken, if you can quickly say what he has um, pled guilty to, Explain the gun and tax charges. Yeah, so um, he pled guilty to uh, the uh, tax charges in exchange uh, for not being prosecuted uh, for the gun charges. And so he was in possession of these firearms at a time that he, by his own admission, uh, was in the throes of uh, addiction issues. Uh, And so uh, this was basically a deal with prosecutors to get them not to prosecute on the other half of the um, case, which a lot of Republicans are looking at and saying, you know, look how soft they went on him. But that's a, you know, very standard um, procedure by which um, uh, prosecutors adhere, uh, offering lighter sentences in exchange for admissions. And finally, we just have 10 seconds, but the U.S. attorney Trump appointed. That's right. Ken Klippenstein, I want to thank you for being with us, investigative border, uh, reporter with The Intercept. We'll link to the piece that you co-wrote with Ryan Grimm. What does the FBI have on Hunter and Joe Biden? That does it for our show, Democracy Now! Produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Wernoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us.